Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I was overcome, I'm frank to say, by a jumble of emotions. Grief, fear, doubt, exhaustion, panic, confusion, and shock. At midnight last Friday, Senator Edward M. Kennedy drove a car off a narrow bridge and into a pond on Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. They never had those last moments of their daughter's life from anybody. Why would another woman's pocketbook be in that car? I think he was a damn good senator for us, for Massachusetts. But I think he lied through his teeth about this whole thing that went on there, and uh, that's why he wasn't, wasn't the president. That meant that there had been a period of time where she could have been saved if we had been called at the time of the accident. A young woman in the car with him was drowned. Kennedy survived but failed to report the accident until 10 hours later. I mean, to this day, I still don't know why they waited. How does the senator take off and leave a car sitting in the water with a body in the back and not tell anybody? I'm Liz McNeil, and this is Cover Up. Nearly 50 years later, there are a few things everyone can agree on. It was a hot summer night. The water was calm. Mary Jo Kopechny attended a cookout at a small rental cottage. And the next morning, she was found dead in a submerged car at the bottom of a tidal pond. Ask people what they know about Chappaquiddick, and you'll likely hear vague memories that Senator Ted Kennedy drove his car off a bridge and a young woman died. She was blonde and pretty, a secretary maybe. There had been a long delay before the police were called. Talk of a cover-up. When my editors broached the idea that People's Podcast should take a closer look into Chappaquiddick, I remember thinking that story is too complicated, too dark. How do you tell a story that's been a mystery for nearly 50 years? Where those who know what happened don't talk. Or they're dead. For nearly a year, I've been researching the events surrounding what happened on the night Mary Jo died. The office I share with my producer, Christina, has become a makeshift war room. It's piled with books about the case, thousands of pages of legal documents, and a collage of post-its and timelines on a wall that our co-workers liken to Carrie Matheson's in Homeland. A comparison both amusing and slightly troubling. Over the course of nearly 50 interviews, I've come across new witnesses, some surprising, even shocking theories, and more than a few rabbit holes. The official account always seemed more calculated than truthful, more questions than answers, layer upon layer upon layer. For every layer that's peeled away, I always come back to a conversation I had with Georgetta Patowski, Mary Jo's cousin and closest living relative. Gwen and Joe never had those last minutes of Mary Jo's life. No one has ever said to them, you know, um, I saw Mary Jo at the party. She was happy. She was looking forward to doing X, Y, or Z. She was, you know, enthusiastic about it, or uh, she wasn't, or we had a wonderful... They never had those last moments of their daughter's life from anybody. I met Georgetta and her son William last summer near their home in Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania. Georgetta was just two years older than Mary Jo, and they were as close as sisters. Before I got started, I wanted to know their concerns and get their blessing. 
I also wanted to find out more about the young woman the world never got a chance to know, the one whose story was eclipsed by that of Ted Kennedy and his political future. I learned Mary Jo was an only child, the first in her family to graduate college. She was a good swimmer. She loved to dance and she loved to shop and she loved the Brooklyn Dodgers. She was modest. Georgetta says you didn't tell a dirty joke around Mary Jo. And she was devoted to Ted's brother, Robert F. Kennedy. She had worked for him for four years, even typing up his declaration to run for president. She had spent weekends at his home in Hickory Hill and grown close to his kids. But everything changed when he was assassinated in the summer of 1968. She was having a hard time. She didn't want to talk about it. She didn't know what to do. She couldn't figure out why anybody would kill him why anybody would do any of those things. And she was trying to find her, get her feet under her. And um, so she wasn't happy. She was having a hard time coping, trying to figure out what to do now because the hero of everybody's dreams was gone. So we did have a hard time. But when she left, I remember going to the airport to take her to the airport. And I remember standing there... um, she had gotten on the plane. She turned and she waved. And I this overwhelming feeling of, I'm never going to see her again. And I never did. For nearly 50 years, Chappaquiddick has loomed large as both a political scandal and chilling mystery. Before it, Edward Kennedy seemed to be the heir to a great dynasty, even a likely president. After it, the tragedy of Mary Jo Kopechny's death shadowed his life and legacy despite his great achievements as a liberal lion of the Senate. More than that, the scandal was a compelling mix of sex, media, and money that signaled a change in the way politicians and their personal lives were covered in the press. It also changed perceptions of the Kennedy family, whose accomplishments and tragedies are part of American myth. In some ways, Chappaquiddick tarnished the myth of Camelot and convinced many who had admired them that the Kennedys had one set of rules for themselves— and another for common people. In his 2009 autobiography, True Compass, published in the month after his death, Ted Kennedy wrote that the night which ended in a horrible tragedy, quote, haunts me every day of my life. As he wrote, atonement is a process that never ends. I believe that. Maybe it's a New England thing or an Irish thing or a Catholic thing. Maybe all those things, but it's as it should be. I've covered many stories during my 25 years at People magazine. Crime, politics, authors, musicians, movie stars, even some reality television. And I've written many about the Kennedy family, beginning with the wedding of JFK Jr. to Carolyn Bassett over 20 years ago. But this story's different. The story of Chappaquiddick is a never-ending labyrinth. And as I came to learn, the senator wasn't the only one who was haunted by what happened that night. That was the case for nearly everyone who lived through it. I often think about my first visit to the island last fall. I asked a local who was taking me over on the ferry to Chappaquiddick what he thought about it all. I don't know what happened that night, he said, but it definitely didn't happen the way they said it happened. The local was Jerry Grant, a former ferry operator who brought Ted over to Chappaquiddick on the evening of July 18th, 1969. Looking back, that's about the last detail everyone can agree on. It was a little after 8 a.m. the next morning when two fishermen saw a glint of metal reflecting off something dark in the water. They were coming back from East Beach on Chappaquiddick, just over the Dyke Bridge. 
and when they peered down into the water of Pucha Pond, they saw an overturned car, with only the rear tires visible above the water's surface. The two men rushed to get help from the house closest to the bridge, just 100 yards away. They knocked on the door of Sylvia Malm, who was renting a small cottage that locals called the Dyke House. Sylvia called the police, and within minutes, police chief Jim Marina was on the way. When I got to the bridge, I uh, saw a car upside down with just the wheels showing, and uh, I did some crazy thing. I went into the mom's cottage, which was located right near there, and I asked if her husband had a bathing suit, and I changed into my bathing suit, his bathing suit, and I uh, left my gun and everything else in there, and I swam out to the car. I was fighting the tide, and I had no eyeglasses or anything else, or water safety glasses, and I couldn't see inside anyway. I placed myself on top of the car, and I sat there. When uh, another officer from Edgartown arrived, Bob Brugger, and I asked him to uh, call the fire department and get the scuba diver over. Jim uh, gave me the the license plate number, which I called into Barnstable 376, which was the call signal for the sheriff's department over on Cape Cod. And about 15, 20 minutes later, the call came back on the police radio that the car was registered to Edward M. Kennedy in Boston. Well, I had a shiver that went up my spine that I will never forget. And then I yelled out to Jim who the car was registered to. And he had a few words to say the world will descend upon us, which it did. And I said, oh my God, another accident involving the Kennedys. In a span of 25 years, Joseph P. Kennedy and his wife Rose had lost four of their nine children. It had been 13 months since the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, nearly six years since the assassination of JFK. And over two decades earlier, their eldest son, Joe Jr., had died in a secret bombing mission in World War II and a daughter, Kathleen, had been killed in a plane accident. The family's losses were on a scale few could ever imagine. Minutes later, John Farrar got a call at his local sporting goods shop, the Turf and Tackle. The police chief needed him at the Dyke Bridge. Farrar was a 33-year-old former Navy skin diver and captain of the Edgartown Fire Department's Scuba Search and Rescue Division. Suited up in his diving gear, Farrar arrived on the scene 20 minutes later. There he saw the police chief sitting atop the trunk of a sunken black Oldsmobile Delta 88. When we arrived at the scene, Jim Arena was sitting on the rear of the automobile. Up, he was, he was, the car was upside down and he was sitting on the differential with a bathing suit. He had not been able to get down to the scene. He said, I think there could be somebody in there I want you to go down and find out, and it is Ted Kennedy's car. Uh, Jim, yes, I could say see by his face that he was uh, in shock, so to speak. Not in real shock, but shocked that it was Kennedy's car. John Album heard about the accident over the police scanner. He drove his tow truck with the memorable slogan, You wreck 'em, we fetch 'em, to the ferry landing. 
There he saw Ted Kennedy, along with two men, hanging around the landing. More on that later. The water in Pucha Pond was murky and at that hour around six to seven feet deep. The tide was so strong, Farrar had to approach the water from the opposite side of the bridge. He brought a rope which he would eventually place around Mary Jo's neck as a safety line to ensure that she did not float away when he removed her from the car. On arrival, I saw two feet in the rear window of the automobile, upside down, that is the automobile is upside down. She was right side up, but I saw two feet and a pair of shins uh, in the rear view window. Um, it would seemed quite apparent at this point that there was no life in the body because there was no movement whatsoever. So I went around to an open window on the right rear side and put my head through inside to see what we had in there. And at that point, I saw Mary Jo with her face pressed up into the footwell. Now, remember, this car is upside down, so describing right side up from upside down is difficult unless you've seen the automobile. So Mary Jo's face is pressed into the footwell of the automobile to avail herself of the last air remaining to her. And her hands are holding onto the leading edge of the seat where you would normally be behind your knees if you were sitting in that seat. And her body assumed a consciously assumed position. Now, this is critical that you understand what this is because her front assumed the contour of the seat with her thighs being along the bottom of the seat where you normally sit and her knees going down and her shins going down the back of the seat where you normally rest against it and her feet being on what would normally be called the hat rack at the rear window. She was holding herself in this position with her face pressed into the footwell looking for that last air. I very carefully, while I was head in the automobile, I turned the body, I inverted the body inside and noticed while I did this that the body was positively buoyed. She was floating within the water in the back seat. And I actually, in order to remove her from that window, I had to bring her down within the water and bring the head out through the window and carefully guide her uh, through it so there was no impingement of the body on the car. He removed the body of 28-year-old Mary Jo Kopechny. She was 5 foot 4 inches, 110 pounds, wearing a white blouse, navy slacks, sandals, and gold bracelets around her left wrist. Already in a state of rigor mortis, her arms were raised, her hands in claw-like positions, and her head tipped back. He brought the body over to Arena, who was still sitting atop the car, and placed her in his arms. He scanned her face to see if she was a Kennedy. It isn't one of the clan, he said. Then the men carefully placed her body in a rowboat and brought her to shore. There's been a lot of stories about how Mary Jo was dressed, and uh, I made the comment that if she was propped up, she could go to a party. She was completely dressed. Associate Medical Examiner Dr. Donald Mills arrived to examine the body around 9.30. 
He performed an external examination to determine the cause of death. It was quick, just 15 minutes. No external marks or bruises were found, but Mary Jo remained fully clothed throughout. According to his later inquest testimony, Mills estimated that Mary Jo had been dead for at least six hours. This girl was completely filled with water, he testified. That is, her bronchial tubes were full, her mouth was full of water, there was water in her nose. Death by drowning, he ruled. Bob Bruguer remembers that moment like it was yesterday. I was standing there watching Dr. Mills as he pressed on Mary Jo's chest cavity and water was flowing out of her nose and her mouth and me with my weak stomach, I was throwing up at the scene. I've never seen anybody that had drowned before. John Album, the man who owned the wrecking business and pulled Ted's car out of the water, had a different account. Only thing that came out was a few bubbles. And growing up around the water there, you know, I'd seen three or four people who were brought in who had drowned, either falling off boats or something. And whenever somebody pressed on their chest, there was always a lot of, you know, water that came out because their lungs were full. And that's why, you know, what the drowning had done was they filled up their lungs with water. In this case, there was no water in her. Whether Mary Jo had significant water in her lungs or not would later become a point of contention. A lot of water would signify drowning, that she was taking in water as she was gasping for air. A lesser amount suggests suffocation, meaning that for an unknown period of time, Mary Jo was alive, fighting for her life, a scenario John Farrar has long believed to be true. She was holding herself in the air void in the back seat, and frequently when this happens, and this we studied in the fire department, what we expect to find when you find someone drowned or suffocated in an automobile, but she had panicked, and her nails were torn uh, in, in her left hand particularly, and the right hand, as she was trying to scratch her way out of the bottom of the automobile. She didn't really understand, and this is usually happens when people drown in darkness. They don't understand that the bottom of the automobile is down on the ground, and in order to get out, they have to go down and out a window or get a door open, which is very difficult to do. But they don't understand that, and they merely know that they're floating up and that that, to them, seems to be the exit from that automobile, wherein, actually, she was going trying to go out through the footwell of the automobile. But this is, this is normal and is usually the way it happens. But I remember seeing the striations on her fingernails and the tips of her fingers where she had actually been clawing as she died. Up until this point, they still didn't know the woman's name. When Farrar dove back down for another check of the car, he discovered a woman's handbag in the front right passenger's side. They didn't know it yet, but it belonged to another woman another woman who had also attended the cookout. Bob Bruguer remembers every detail. It was an inexpensive Nantucket type of uh, pocketbook. It didn't have a cover. And um, if you're familiar with the Nantucket light chip baskets, they are like woven with very narrow reeds and they're extremely expensive. And going through the pocketbook, um, there was... Uh, 
the Senate pass of Rosemary Kehoe. Oh, and she had, as I learned later, a nickname of Cricket. Uh, and also had her room keys at the Dunes. And the Dunes is a, um, well, it was a, a resort in Edgartown at South Beach. My feeling all along is why would another woman's pocketbook be in that car unless she was in that car? Okay, because I think a pocketbook follows a woman for wherever she goes. Huck Look, a local deputy sheriff who lived on Chappaquiddick, stopped by the bridge. He instantly recognized the Oldsmobile. That's the exact car I saw last night, he said. He even remembered part of the license plate because one of the numbers was on his old basketball jersey. Here's John Farrar. He came down through the scene after we had removed Mary Jo and the whole thing, and he saw Kennedy's car, and he said to Jim Arena and Bob Bruguer, who were there, he said, that's the exact car I saw last night heading down the Dyke Bridge Road, running away from me. When I saw it, I went to offer help because they looked as though they were lost, and it went down the Dyke Bridge Road at a high rate of speed. After being told Ted had been spotted earlier that morning at the Chappaquiddick Ferry Landing, Chief Arena called the police station and spoke to his colleague, Carmen Salvador. I called there at the station. I said, see if you can send somebody down to find Senator Kennedy. And uh, Carmen said, he's here now. So I spoke to him on the phone. I said, I'm sorry, there's been an accident here. Do you know if anybody else is in the car? And I swear he said no. I decided to go back to the station. I got dressed as much as well as I could with my hair wet and everything else. And I went back to the station and I walked into my office and there was uh, Senator Kennedy and Paul Markham. And I said, I'm sorry about uh, Rosemary Keogh. And they said, no, uh, that wasn't Rosemary Keel, it was Mary Jo Kopechny. What police didn't know was that Mary Jo and Rosemary Keel were among six women, as well as six men, who attended a party the night before, a reunion party for people involved with Bobby Kennedy's presidential campaign. When Chief Arena returned to the station, Ted Kennedy was sitting at his desk. It was almost as if the roles were reversed. Ted was sitting in the chief's office, using his phone. And there was Arena, standing in a wet bathing suit, stunned and in awe of the senator. It was now 10 hours since the accident, and Senator Kennedy had just called the Kopechnies. Mary Jo's mother, Gwen, had answered the phone. Ted was crying. There's been an accident, he told her. And Mary Jo is dead. Gwen screamed when she heard the news and collapsed in shock. Her neighbors found her on the floor. Over the next three hours, Ted sat in the police station, alongside Paul Markham, a friend and fellow party guest who was acting as his attorney. They met with Registry of Motor Vehicles Inspector, George Red Kennedy, no relation, and Red's assistant, Bob Mola, who had just returned from examining Ted's car at the crash site. Also there was Ted's cousin and closest confidant, Joe Gargan, who had also attended the party the night before. Here's Bob Mola. I was there, we were all talking. I guess... 
the group of, I'm going to say us, the police and all those who were there, those ones with the uh, authority, which would have been the police chief and some of the other higher-ups, started forming a strategy of how they were going to handle it. I, I have that feeling today. I had that feeling then that uh, we can't make a big deal out of it, even if it is a major incident. The, a lot of this discussion took place before he arrived at the room. You know, let's not make too big a deal out of it. Uh, he is a U.S. senator. We got to do what we can to, you know, take care of the guy. But uh, there was a lot of conversation going on with everybody, even after Kennedy and the other two arrived. It wasn't like you see on TV where they put someone in a chair and start grilling them. You know, it was more casual questioning. You know, what about this, Ted? What about this, Senator? Where were you here, Senator? How'd you get from there to there, Senator? You know, things like that. It wasn't uh, an interrogation-type questioning, more of a casual. They just had to discuss it with their attorneys and uh, Mrs. Kennedy, uh, the Ted's mother. For some reason, Ted mentioned her a couple times. They got to speak to my mother about this. So there was words said that time in the, the room, and I don't know whether Kennedy was there yet or not, to the effect that we got to be very careful with this. We can't let it get out of hand because he is the U.S. senator from Massachusetts. And I took that to the effect that we got to help bury it, bury the incident, and just do what we could to uh, not charge him with manslaughter or drunken driving or whatever. But Ted Kennedy was never charged with involuntary manslaughter, which would mean proof of recklessness or negligence. And at that point, the senator had not revealed there had been drinking at the party the night before or that there had even been a party. Chief Arena would only learn that from a reporter the next day. He never considered giving Ted an alcohol test. He never even asked him if he had been drinking. In fact, Arena never asked Ted a specific question. Eight hours later, you couldn't tell if anybody was under the influence because it was very sober in his appearance, but uh, I didn't detect any alcohol. In fact, I was asked about that. And I said, well, what good would I do to have eight hours later? A lawyer could blow that out of the water. You know, he looked well-dressed. He looked clean uh, demeanor. He looked serious. But I detected not, nothing about alcohol. I hate to put it on all on myself, but what I did was what I thought was right. But in retrospect, what happened during those hours, and um, couldn't we have come up with something else? But in order to convict somebody of manslaughter, voluntary manslaughter, you'd have to have been able to show that there was a radical operation. And if you saw what the bridge was, it took a, a curve at the bridge, and it appears as though the car was going straight ahead and hit the brakes and dug into the, there was about a foot barrier uh, on the bridge and flipped it over. But the mystery is Rosemary Keogh's pocketbook being in the car. The time elapsed, and uh, Holly left Chappaquiddick. Here's Bob Bruguer. Uh, you 
you're not dealing with an everyday citizen, okay? You're dealing with a U.S. senator, and I'm sure he was extended special privileges, okay? Uh, he came from a prominent American family, um, and as we we talked about it uh, briefly afterwards, that things would have been done entirely different, but... When you had the world descending upon you, I, I mean, uh, I'm sure Jim had a lot of stress. He never showed it, okay? Um, he he was very professional in all of his dealings, and everybody loved him. Chief Arena left Ted and Paul Markham in his office to finish the statement while he returned to the accident site to oversee the towing of the car. Markham wrote out the statement dictated by Ted. They asked Arena not to release it to the press until they had run it by the Kennedy family attorney. The statement, just 252 words, was brief. On July 18, 1969, at approximately 11.15 p.m. in Chappaquiddick, Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, I was driving my car on Main Street on my way to get the ferry back to Edgartown. I was unfamiliar with the road and turned right on Dyke Road instead of bearing hard left on Main Street. After proceeding for approximately half a mile on Dyke Road, I descended a hill and came upon a narrow bridge. The car went off the side of the bridge. There was one passenger in the car with me, Miss Mary, a former secretary of my brother, Robert Kennedy. The car turned over and sank into the water and landed with the roof resting on the bottom. I attempted to open the door and window of the car, but have no recollection of how I got out of the car. I came to the surface and then repeatedly dove down to the car in an attempt to see if the passenger was still in the car. I was unsuccessful in the attempt. I was exhausted and in a state of shock. I recall walking back to where my friends were eating. There was a car parked in front of the cottage, and I climbed into the back seat. I then asked for someone to bring me back to Edgartown. I remember walking around for a period of time and then going back to my hotel room. When I fully realized what had happened this morning, I immediately contacted the police. In the statement, Ted left a blank space after Mary Jo's first name because he didn't know how to spell Kopechny. Assured the senator would answer questions at a later time, Chief Arena allowed him to return to the family compound about 30 miles away in Hyannis Port. He then helped sneak Ted and Markham out of the building through a back entrance to avoid the awaiting press. He even called the pilot, a Kennedy supporter, to get Ted off the island. Over in New Bedford, Edmund Denise, the district attorney, was monitoring the case, but unwilling to step in. At least not yet. Jimmy Smith, an assistant DA under Denise, played a key role in what happened next behind the scenes. He had worked as an advance man, a staffer who handled the logistics ahead of campaign events for both JFK and RFK's presidential campaigns. He knows a lot, but reveals little, very little, I was soon to discover. We were underhanded, so we treat this like any other automobile accident that doesn't have alcohol and death involved. That was the key. Hands off. We're not touching it. That's why we didn't get involved. It's a state police matter. Handling the district court, he said, we treat this like any ordinary automobile accident. 
ran by the chief of police because the guy that was newly appointed chief said, there's no alcohol involved. We had a rule, accident, alcohol, death, district attorney. Everything else handled on the local level. Meanwhile, the issue of the autopsy had become a game of hot potato between the DA, Chief Arena, and the medical examiner. The undertaker was instructed to hold on to the body, pending word from the DA's office. Dunn Gifford, Ted's legislative aide, arrived at the funeral home. He said it was to help. Others say it was to make the body disappear. When the undertaker pressed on Mary Jo's abdomen, less than a teacup amount of pinkish froth was expelled. He had expected more liquid to come from a drowning victim. We'll explain why the froth is significant in a later episode. He talked about it with Dr. Mills, the medical examiner, but Mills told him he didn't want to cause any problem. He was getting pressure from reporters to call for an autopsy, and the DA's office had left the decision up to him. And that was his decision, no autopsy. Chief Arena was getting nowhere. Remember that purse they found in Ted's car? When Arena called the number on the hotel key, found inside the purse, there was some muffled discussion on the other end of the line before Rosemary Keogh gave Arena the proper spelling of Mary Jo's last name. When told he had her purse, Rosemary informed him that she'd send someone to pick it up from the station. Mary Jo's handbag was later found back at the Lawrence Cottage. That afternoon, Bob Mola drove Ted, Paul Markham, and Joe Gargan to the airport for a flight back to the Kennedy family compound in Hyannisport. He remembers the drive with Ted in the front seat. I'm the one that gave him a ride to the airport to fly him out. Him, Markham Gargan, and Bob Carroll. And he, it was his plane They flew him back to Hyannis. One of the things I do recall him saying when we were all together is that I'm not going to make any further statements or answer any questions till I discuss this with Hyannis at my mother's residence or with his mother. But even when I drove him out to the airport, he didn't have to take a drink to get feeling good with the smell. (laughs) A whiskey type uh, smell. It, It appeared to be coming from, most of it from Ted, but there could have been a little bit of it from the other two as well. I was in the driver's seat and he was in the seat right beside me and the other two were behind me. The the, the thing is, a strong odor of alcohol, unsteady on his feet, blurry eyes. He had all those conditions. I don't think there was too much slurring of his speech because I think a lot of it had worn off, but you could tell he had been drinking quite heavily beforehand. I know he there was one comment made because somebody tried to cut us off or something, and I had a swerve, and he says, um, let's take it easy. We don't need another accident today. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, that was it was sort of in jest-like. But, uh, no, he was, uh, I guess, I'm going to call him, not knowing him before or only for that short period of time, he acted like... Uh, a politician that knew what he was doing. This was getting confusing. Chief Arena said the senator had appeared clear-eyed and sober. Yet Bob Mola smelled alcohol when he drove Ted back to the airport. And Ted had said earlier that he had not been driving under the influence. So what was the truth? Back on Chappaquiddick, Bob Bruguer drove by the cottage where the party had been the night before. You know what? Looking back on the scene, um, when 
I was over at the cottage, and there were two GI cans. Those are garbage cans, a standard size, standing about three and a half, four feet tall. And they were outside with all the trash, but they were overflowing. You could not have put another bottle or a can uh, in those GI cans. Now, there were only 12 people at that party. These GI cans were outside of the cottage where the party had occurred the previous evening. And I told to Jim later, I said, we should have taken a picture of those. Time was running out. Chief Arena tried calling Rosemary again, but was told she had already checked out of her hotel. He would never get the chance to question Ted or Rosemary again. I was wondering why somebody else's pocketbook would be in the car if uh, Mary Jo was just in there. And uh, there was always some conjecture that there might have been somebody in the back seat. But if there was somebody in the back seat, then how did they get out? And uh, I always wonder how he got out of the car because it was pretty well banged up. I should have talked to Rosemary. I should have asked her, but she was gone. And I think they probably went back to Washington. I don't know why I didn't. Because I guess she was off the island and gone and before I realized that they were having a party. And I was a, I hate to say it, but I was a vital cog. <laughs> no, to the, the town. Because I, who would I leave in charge, you know? You know, I felt alone, to be honest with you. The state police didn't come into the scene. The district attorney didn't come into the scene. And uh, if I may jump ahead, we had an inquest, a grand jury, and uh, still nobody filed a complaint further than I did, so. I met with Chief Arena at his daughter's house outside of Boston last fall. He's 88 years old and unfailingly kind. His health isn't great. He's in the early stages of Parkinson's disease, and he's slowing down. But he was eager to talk. He was sitting in a recliner in front of a television, a walker at his side, and his grandkids were playing in the next room. He's a giant man, six foot, four inches, but stooped now. We talked for hours and have had many phone calls in the months since. In the course of working on this podcast, some of the people who I was hoping to speak with have died. Some in the last few months, even weeks. And talking to Chief Arena and the others I would come to meet made me realize that telling this story was also a race against time. And yet, like others who had lived through it, Arena's recall of certain details about that day, nearly 50 years later, was remarkable. He remained haunted by the death of Mary Jo. And over and over, he wondered aloud how the senator could have left her in the car for 10 hours before reporting the accident. I never should have left and let him leave the island, but, yeah, well... These were all things that came to roost, but I, I thought I would see him again. I really did. I, I guess I was for screwed on that one. And like that, everyone vanished from the island. Arena was left with a myriad of unanswered questions. What about the 10 hours it took for Ted to report the accident? What about Rosemary's purse? What about Huck Look, the deputy sheriff who saw Ted's car the night before? Last fall, as I was beginning my research, I met with a source involved in the investigation and asked him how would I ever understand what happened. He told me, either you believe Ted Kennedy's account or you believe Huck Look. 
on this season of Cover Up. Huck, as he told me at one point, the true story will come out after my death. It's dangerous. What is it, a month after I went on with Kern Affair, our house burned. We lost just about everything we had. And the night of the fire, the local fireman comes up and he came in the backyard with me. He said, I'll teach you to go on national television. We were very concerned. Our phone was tapped. We were called and threatened. Someone was coming to get us with a shotgun. That those were the exact words that were used. Joey Gargan was blamed by Rose Kennedy for allowing any of it to have happened because she felt that he should have been taking better care of Teddy. Almost like they were trying to pin the accident on Joe, you know, and say, well, the senator wasn't involved, that Joe Gargan might have been driving the car. She was irrelevant to them. She was irrelevant to the Kennedys. And I felt really terrible about that. Because she's the one who died. The host looked into the camera and said, in all of the history of this program, never before had they encountered so many obstacles coming out of Ted Kennedy's office who attempted to persuade them not to do the show, not to touch this subject. Finding the Gargan tapes, that's like the holy grail of this. They might be in the archives. I don't know. We shall see. Cover Up is a joint production by People Magazine and Cadence 13. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. To share your thoughts and theories on the case, you can join our Facebook group to continue the discussion. Just search Cover Up. For more, go to people.com slash cover up, or to reach us directly, email coverup at people.com.